Welcome to The Workplace, where we talk about the cultures we work in and how to make them better for everyone. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with Lovey Ajayi-Jones about the power and pitfalls of stirring the pot in a professional setting. She sheds light on how she assumed her current title as professional troublemaker and how stifling dissent in the workplace can be the death of innovation. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. Lovey Ajayi-Jones is a successful speaker, author, and thought leader, working, as she puts it, at the intersection of humor, media, and justice. Her blog, awesomelylovey.com, has been making waves for nearly two decades now, and her TED Talk, Get Comfortable with Being Uncomfortable, has been viewed more than 7.5 million times. Her latest book is Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual, wherein she addresses the ways in which fear of disruption often gets in the way of saying or doing the hard thing, even when we believe it's the best course of action. Lovey was interviewed by me, and even though I was a little starstruck, I entered our conversation with a real excitement for this troublemaker's words of wisdom. Let's get to it. Lovey, welcome to the workplace. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to have you here. Uh, So your current job title, aside your job titles, I should say, uh, aside from being an author, a podcaster, uh, sought-after speaker, thought leader, is professional troublemaker. Yes. But, but before we get to that, I'd like to talk to you about a di- different job title, your first job title. What was your first job? Ooh, my first job ever was as camp counselor hmm. in Chicago for a small, like, church camp. But it was not, not like an overnight camp. It was like everybody goes home. And I right. think I was like 15. You weren't, in, you weren't in cabins in the woods or anything like that. Right. No, 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 no. It was one of those day camps of like, actually, it's not even really a camp because we weren't even in the woods. We were like at a church. It was basically almost like a summer babysitter. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's sort of like a Bible camp, you know? I think that's... Yeah. That's a common yeah. experience. I've been to one of those as a child, for sure. Yeah. I was not a counselor. I was not responsible enough. <laughs> I don't even know if I was responsible enough. I probably looked like I was one of the kids myself. <laughs> well, that leads me to my next question, which is, do you think that that first job in any way prepared you for the job you have now? No. <laughs> well, I mean, unless you think about... The fact that being an adult sometimes looks like babysitting everybody. No, that not that the truth? But otherwise, no. Well, I think it maybe in uh, maybe existentially it's prepared you. 
<laughs> Maybe. That's a great way to look at it. I mean, I think people's first jobs are uh, are usually so sort of like circumstantial. It's not like you sought that out as a kid. You were just like, oh, this is available. Maybe I should do that. Yeah, I think it was like easy money. Well, that's what mm. I thought. We should probably end up being easy money because, I mean, I wasn't responsible for much. Like, it was just make sure everybody doesn't kill each other. Yeah, and um, the lives of dozens of children. <laughs> exactly. I think it was really more like 10 kids. Oh, that's not too much. It wasn't that much. It actually sounds like fun, I got to say. Yeah. So your current job title doesn't exactly fit into the traditional idea of, you know, having a workplace. But I'm interested in how you view work and the culture it creates. I mean, do you do you think of what you have right now as a workplace? I think work is everywhere for me. You know, I don't have a locale for work. I think um, because every day of my life looks different. Work can sometimes be in the plane. Work can be on a stage. Work can be in my office. It might be at a coffee shop. Workplaces everywhere. And the type of work that I do as a culture critic, as a writer, as a speaker, I pull inspiration from everywhere. So, yeah. So your latest book is Professional Troublemaker, The Fear Fighter Manual. Yes. What is a troublemaker? And why do you think they might play an important role in workplaces? Yeah, I think a professional troublemaker is somebody who is committed to doing or saying the hard things in the world, whether they are in the office and have to point out a terrible idea for a meeting, I mean, for a campaign, or whether they're the person who's sitting at the dinner table and tells your uncle their joke is not funny and it's inappropriate, or whether they're the friend who says, let's have a tough conversation. I think professional troublemakers are ultimately disruptors for the good, right? There are people who are just like, I got to be a part of better things happening in the rooms that I'm in, in the world that I'm a part of. And um, they want to do something about it and they can't help it, even if it gets them in trouble. I guess it comes with the territory. Absolutely. It's an occupational hazard for professional troublemakers. Mm. Has, has being a professional troublemaker ever gotten you in trouble? Oh, of course. Now, first of all, I think as a professional troublemaker, when you go into your career, whatever your career is, your role is to be one of the people in the room who is not shy about speaking up in the tough moments, uncomfortable moments. Mm -hmm. And that will get you in trouble a lot because if you're the person who is in the room, the lone dissenter, you know, you are going against the grain, people are not going to always love it. But I think the reason why professional troublemakers are necessary is that we are the ones who try to keep you honest. We try to find your blind spots and point them out and say, hey, you know, have we thought about this one question before we want to do this tagline? Have we considered somebody who's not in the room to make sure that they're being thought about? You know, in what ways are we leaving anybody out? So it's gotten me in trouble before because like when I point out people's blind spots, there are times when they don't like it. And I'll tell you one of those times. So I was asked to speak at an event three years ago, three or four years ago. I was a keynote speaker for a company's diversity and equity conference day or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, they sent me the speaker graphic, you know, as people love to do. 
pretty standard. The speakers, it's pretty standard. And the speaker's graphic was me, a black woman, surrounded by six white men. And I was like, okay, so optically, this does not look that diverse. Just because I am a black woman does not mean six white men now constitute diversity. And I sent an email to the CEO of the company who had invited me to come speak, who had me, you know, who was like, oh my God, we love the other talks that we saw. And I said very thoughtfully, like, hi, I'd love for you to reconsider this speaker's lineup. You know, it doesn't speak to diversity in this value that you say your company has. It does not speak to the day's lessons. It doesn't really, it's not aligned with what you say you want to do here. Right. And you know what happened? He disinvited me uh, from that, speaking. That must have been a very sad diversity conference <laughs> with now six white guys <laughs> with six white dudes and i was because and his response to me in email was well maybe this is not the right year for you to come speak maybe you know and and he instantly got real defensive mm -hmm. he was like we are we do value diversity like this is we we are a company that loves to make sure that everybody's voice is heard not from what i'm seeing here not from what I'm seeing here. And it was interesting because I'm like, here's the thing. He already paid my deposit. So him disinvited right. me. I'm like, well, all right, kept that. But it ultimately also spoke to, yeah, what happens sometimes when you do speak the truth, when you do use your voice, when you do say, hey, there's a better way to do this. People would not always love it. And you might lose money in the process, which is always people's mm -hmm. ideas and people's fears. What if I get punished if I'm a professional troublemaker? Sometimes you will. Sometimes you will. Yeah, I think people, they, they fear, you know, losing their job or, or, or losing influence, you know, speaking up and, and saying the, the tough thing when your, your job is on the line can be really tough. And that's, that's where uh, fighting the fear comes in doesn't it well it is where fighting the fear comes in because of course the the fear of like punishment of consequence is valid mm -hmm. it's also where you have to start thinking about what is the consequence that you are afraid of and can you deal if it happens right. so we're that consequence of what if they disinvite me yeah it happened what if i lose money yes it happened but what happens after so I lost half of the money that I thought I was going to make, but I did not end up without a home because I lost that money. I did not end up falling behind and falling into debt because I lost that money. I did not end up putting somebody else's life in jeopardy because I lost that money. So ultimately, what was I afraid of? Losing money. Okay. Does that mean you lose your livelihood? If it means you lose your livelihood, if it means you lose your home, if it means you can't feed your family, by all means, survive, save yourself, be quiet. But when we say we're afraid of consequence and the consequence is not life altering, it's not going to destroy or make this real negative impact in your life, then what's the actual fear? I think that's a really good distinction there because, well, you know, you, you lost some money, but you, you didn't 
compromise your values? You know, correct. How how much are your principles worth? <laughs> how much are your principles worth? A lot worth? more than and that. <laughs> exactly. And the other part is when we are silent. What act? What are we actually losing? A lot of times we're losing self respect. We're losing the integrity that we say we walk with. Um, and sometimes we are losing the chance to make some real change, to be a part of positive impact. Sometimes we are losing the chance to use our power for good. Often we're losing the chance. So I usually think there's more for me to lose by being quiet than by speaking up. I think it comes down to being uncomfortable. I know you have, you've said this in, in your talks and your books a lot, but uh, you know humans are more often than not prioritizing harmony over justice, over you know equity. Uh, over accountability, but yeah. how can we be comfortable being uncomfortable? It's so it's such a visceral thing, you know. Even just being awkward <laughs> can be too much for people. How do we overcome that? You know, it's funny. You just have to do it, and it's not even about overcoming the discomfort. You just have to know that discomfort is temporary. If you're uncomfortable right now, in an hour, when you walk out the room, you're no longer uncomfortable. So deal with that discomfort and know that this is just temporary. It is part of what happens. And I think discomfort is pointing to you that you are outside of your comfort zone. This is a growth opportunity time. And you either take it or you run back to your comfort zone and say, it's comfortable here. I'm just going to sit here. You don't evolve that way. You don't. Nothing moves. Nothing grows in that way. So it's understanding that, yes. Sometimes discomfort can feel physically weird. You can feel the tension in your body. It's temporary. Yeah, we need to, we need like an uncomfortable, like a, like a room where you can be trained to be uncomfortable, the uncomfortable room. I guess, you know what? Most meeting rooms uh, at every office building is that room. <laughs> yes, but you know what's funny is like, I think I always think about me not being uncomfortable with myself. So we're afraid of the discomfort in the room where everybody's watching. But we are all also familiar with the discomfort with yourself. When you don't do or say the thing you feel like doing and afterwards you're like beating yourself up because you're feeling regretful about it. You're like, ah, I should have said something. And then it's on your spirit. And then you're like thinking about it in the shower. And you're like, oh, I couldn't sleep because I was thinking yeah, about this that, one that thing. That feeling isn't temporary. It's not temporary. That one lasts way longer than the feeling in the room where you're like, yeah, people did not like what I just said. The feeling of sitting with yourself when you know you did not do your part is way more uncomfortable for me. Oh, yeah. I, I have lots of things that I think about late at night that I could and should have done much like all of us i'm sure yep so the audience of this podcast not exclusively but a, a lot of them are leaders they're leaders in hr yeah and i'm curious what your advice is to people who are in power how do they speak truth to power when they maybe are the power what do they have to do what do they need to do well when you are the power in power, you have to recognize your power first. You have to know that you are leading with a lot of privilege. 
And I want to talk about privilege because sometimes people hear it and they feel scolded. Think about privilege as the thing you did not have to work hard to get that pushes you forward. And it's not meaning, it's not calling you lazy. It does not mean you showed up in the world and everything was easy. It means we were all, not all of us actually, some of us were born with certain things that pushed us forward, that did not push us back. So for example, I'm a black woman. So my, the margins that I'm on are black and female, but I'm also not poor. I'm college educated. I'm Christian. I'm straight. I'm cisgender. All of those are privileges of mine, which means I walk with a lot of power, with a lot more power than I can think of if I just think about my margins. So there's oftentimes that we're in the room and we're thinking, well, I work really hard for something. We all did, yes. But certain things about you might push you forward. And that means you have power that you can use and power is limitless. So those of us who are C-suite entrepreneurs, we run our companies, we're the head of a department, we are VP level. When you are running a meeting, the power that you walk with in that meeting is a lot. And your job is to figure out how to use that power in service of other people. How do you make sure the intern's voice is heard when everybody else is talking? How do you make sure that you are fighting for equitable pay for your, for your junior members? How do you make sure that in that room, you are not a power vacuum where people feel like they can't give you feedback, they can't challenge your ideas, they can't say anything that's going to go against anything you say? How do you make sure that you are the leader who is not just creating yes people on their team and saying, hey, I'd love to hear your ideas, even if they're counter to mine? That's how you use your power in those rooms. Welcoming the challengers, welcoming the criticism, right? Welcoming it. Yes. There's so many people who have bosses who they feel like they cannot tell the truth to, or they cannot challenge, or they cannot say anything besides great to. And I think in those moments, you're building an atmosphere of compliance as opposed to innovation. And when you have compliant employees, as opposed to people who feel like they can disrupt for good, you're not going to create the best work. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. What's your advice for people who've had those kinds of leaders where they've, you know, they've faced their fear, they've spoken the truth to power, but they've gotten nothing. It's just silence. It's like talking to a wall. I'm sure that can be demoralizing and it may make them more reluctant to do that in the future. How do you pick yourself up and keep fighting? Absolutely. That's frustrating right? That's really frustrating when that happens. And that happens because there aren't enough troublemakers. Mm. Everybody's expecting everybody else to do the work. So then the one person who speaks up ends up being on an island by themselves. And then nobody listens to them. What happens if two or three people affirm what they just said? They would be listened to. So instead of us waiting for that one person to speak up, and then when the person speaks up, we don't back them up. We should use our own voice too as currency for them. When that happens, the room is less lonely for the dissenter. It becomes less extraordinary to be the person who's speaking up and speaking truth. It becomes more of the culture of the place. And I think that's really important. That's really important. Is that what you mean when you say loaning courage to others? 
Absolutely. To loan courage is to say, here's the, here's how brave I'm going to be. And I think you can be too. I'm going to give you some courage that you might not have in that moment. So for example, whenever you want to do something strong or that you feel is going to have you being the lone voice in the room, somebody saying your voice is necessary, can loan you courage. Somebody telling you in the meeting or even before the meeting, if you say this, I'm going to back you up. That loans you courage. When your boss says, I love to hear your ideas, your feedback, your critique, that loans you courage. I find uh, that uh, speaking up for somebody who is, you can tell, is trying to get a word in edgewise, but they're, you know, maybe too shy or maybe they're, you know, their voice is just naturally quiet. Well, I've got a loud voice, so I'll say, you know what? What do you think? <laughs> and try to get them to like have the space for a second. Exactly. Exactly. They even that ask, what do you think? Is not just telling the person I want to, like you're okay to say what you think, but it's like, no, I value your contribution. So you said that uh, companies win when they celebrate the challengers. Mm-hmm. Why is it in organizations' best interest to embrace the very people that might question their actions or even their, you know, existence? Yeah. You know, especially when they're internal disruptors, internal troublemakers, you want to celebrate them because they already work there, which already means they clearly believe in the mission. They believe in the work on some level. So when they ask questions, when they push back, when they challenge what's happening, instead of being defensive, you should actually say, I should probably listen because they have purviews that I might not have. You know, when we talk about diversity, we're not just talking about diversity of color. We're talking about experience, tone, you know, thought. And the more that's in the room, the stronger the work is. Because if in a room of people who have all these different perspectives, you can get everybody to agree that something is good, something is thoughtful, then it probably is. Mm-hmm. So when we quiet the, the, the dissenters and we quiet the troublemakers, what we're saying is, don't look out for my blind spots. I want you to agree with me, even if what I'm doing doesn't make sense. I want you to stand with something you don't believe in, which in that case, all you'll create is people who are now going to be silent. I think it's in the best interest of companies to say yes. We are welcoming different perspectives. In moments of backlash that happen with um, any company, I'm always asking, who was the troublemaker who had been silenced in that room? Who knew this would not go well, but said, you know what? I'm going to be quiet because somebody always knows. And when you have a place where people don't feel like they can speak up, you've created a culture of compliance, like I said, and it's going to hurt your work. It's going to hurt your business. Yeah, it it's, can be devastating culturally, and I think it affects the financial situation of a company more than people would let on. But I think it's it's delayed because you'll, you'll have this closed-off culture and suddenly people are leaving, people aren't speaking yep. up, no ideas are happening. It's Correct. Mm-hmm. So a, a quote of yours has become a common saying at my workplace. Okay. Not, not my circus, not my clown. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, can you explain that to people? <laughs> so I did not originate that quote. I heard it from somewhere years ago. Fair enough. Credit but it's the idea. Credit where credit. Listen, like I'm like, but it's the idea that something that happens is not your business. 
So you say, not my service, not my clown. And it happens a lot when we're sitting in rooms where something might be happening that we think, you know what, that's not in my purview, it's not in my charge. So it's not for me to handle. So then we end up passing the baton to other people. You know, it's, it's when we're sitting in a meeting and somebody says a terrible idea and you're quiet because you're like, well, that's not my department. So I'm not going to say anything. But it's like, well, if it's in the room that you're in, it is your circus. It is your clown. It is yours to be responsible for. And even if it's not your department, it's like ultimately like somebody's house being on fire, your neighbor's house being on fire. You look over there and you go, eh, it's not my house. I'm not going to call 911. But then what happens when the smoke reaches your house? When you could have called 911, they could have put the fire out and it wouldn't have reached the house ever to begin with. But because you're like, it's not my business, you did not do your part as a member of that community to stop somebody else's fire. So now it's yours too. So things that we think is not our business really become ours faster than we think they will. Thank you, because I think too many people are using it a little incorrectly in my office, where it's kind of like a good thing, like, oh, it's not my circus, not my clown. No, it's like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> it is your circus. It is your. It clown. actually is your circus. It actually is your clown. Most of the time, more than you think it is. If you could snap your fingers and remove a corporate buzzword or phrase from the universe, what would it be? Corporate buzzword or phrase that I would remove. Something around like, when we're talking about science and people are like, well, both sides matter. No, they don't. Well, shit, actually, you know what? That's the thing. All lives matter is the one I want to get rid of. There you go. (laughs) All lives matter got to go. It's ridiculous. You're right. It's funny that you connected to to that sort of like all sides matter argument, uh, you know, sort of anti-science kind of thing, because it's the same kind of faulty thinking, right? It is so faulty. It's like all lives matter specifically is faulty because when we say it's usually used in response to when we say black lives matter as somebody being like, well, all lives matter. Okay, it's like me saying, I like rice, and you go, but what about salad? Salad is also good. I wasn't talking about salad. I was talking about rice. Let me affirm my love of rice. That's the same thing. Yeah, it's like saying, you know, oh, you have problems, but what about all the other problems in the world? Exactly. It's like being like, oh, my gosh, we've got to fix climate change. And people go, but what about? It's like, it doesn't matter. We're talking about this one issue. Let's focus on that. Who are your heroes and who are your villains? Mm. You don't have to name names, but you can if you want to. I am inspired and I consider heroes to be people on multiple margins, like black trans women who are being killed every day, but are still speaking up and using their voice. People who have real things to put on the line. People who, when they do show up, their very presence threatens people. I can, and yet they still continue to show up and speak truth to power. They're heroes. Villains, people who deny science are villains to me. People who scientists have to say, listen, I've worked for 25 years in this industry, but here you are finding out something from YouTube University and denying my knowledge. So yes, I consider science deniers to be villains. What's the last thing you read that stuck with you? It could be a book, an article, a tweet. 
the writer and activist and poet bell hooks just passed mm. and i've just been seeing a bunch of her quotes she's she's been creating prolific work for decades and when she passed um her words came back to everybody's just consciousness because we're reminded when our favorite artists leave that they contributed so much so one of those quotes that she said is sometimes people try to destroy you precisely because they recognize your power, not because they don't see it, but because they see it and they don't want it to exist. So I've been seeing that quote a lot and that has stuck with me. Last one. Describe the workplace culture of your dreams. What does it look like? What does it feel like? You know, I feel like I'm trying to build the work, the workplace culture of my dreams with my company. It's a place where we do meaningful work, where we laugh together, where we challenge each other, um, where we back each other up. Um, and we do it all with grace. That sounds lovely. Yeah. So that's the company I'm trying to build. And I hope I've built that environment with my team members. I think it's cool to be in the process of building your dream workplace culture. That must feel yeah. satisfying. It is. It's actually really good, good to like operate in that space with that idea in mind, knowing that every single day is a chance to build that. You know, every meeting we can laugh, you know, every every mistake we make, we can say, hey, it's fine. Nobody died. Let's just do it better the next time. Um, and that's making me an even better leader. Lovey, thank you so, so much for joining us in the workplace. It's been a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I'm always honored when people want to have me share space with them. Uh, you are welcome in our space anytime. Now it's time for tangible takeaways where we take big ideas and soak them overnight in oak-aged balsamic vinegar before mixing them into our almond flour dough along with dried cherries and pistachios, kneading the dough only slightly before dividing into two pieces, shaping into equal cylinders and pressing them down slightly, placing them on a baking sheet lined with parchment paper, and baking them at 325 Fahrenheit for 30 minutes, letting them cool for another 30, then slicing the soft loaves into beautiful half-inch crescents placing them back onto parchment paper and generously drizzling them with turbinado sugar, and then baking them for a second time to produce a crispy, crunchy, sweet and savory seasonal biscotti fit for dipping in our company-branded mug fully loaded with breakroom coffee.
first is that if you want to be a professional troublemaker like Lovey, well, you probably have to find another title because I'm sure she has that one trademarked. But if you still want to be a troublemaker, don't be surprised when your actions result in trouble. Speaking truth to the powers that be will inevitably lead to various forms of resistance and backlash. But this type of conflict isn't a bug, it's a feature of the troublemaker operating system. So steal your nerves and lean into the disagreements. It's only in the midst of this melee that the best ideas can start to rise above the noise and show themselves to be the best path towards positive change. The second is to loan courage to those who need it. Recognize that even if you have one of the loudest voices in the room, either literally or metaphorically, you may not always have the best ideas on a given issue. Create space for those whose voices might not usually be heard using four simple words. What do you think? Not only will you hear from someone whose voice might not usually win out over the noise, but you may also begin to evolve a culture where people want to hear from everyone, not just those with the bully pulpit. The third is to celebrate the challengers. It may not be business as usual, but how else can we expect to grow a robust culture of ideas if we don't nurture the voicing of dissent? Conversely, what do we expect to happen when we go in the opposite direction? Silencing those who challenge convention can have a chilling effect on the culture at large. But when we raise up those who thoughtfully confront the status quo with questions, doubts, and honest skepticism, we encourage a dynamic workplace comfortable with change and uncertainty. It may be uncomfortable for a time, but as Lovey reminds us, it's only temporary. Better a mild discomfort in a meeting now than that lingering, nagging feeling we're left with when we shut down before we even begin to change. This episode was narrated by yours truly and produced by Annika Rapp with writing, music, and sound design by Daniel Foster Smith. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to theworkplace at octanner.com. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular platform for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, career anniversaries, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com.